welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, you will hear a discussion between directors Paul Thomas Anderson and Sir Alan Parker about Paul's newest film, Phantom Thread. Set in the 50s in a high-end fashion house, Phantom Thread is a tale of power, vulnerability and manipulation, starring Vicky Creeps and Daniel Day-Lewis in what is said to be his final role. Paul spoke about shooting on location in London, working with these actors and his approach to shooting on film. The interview you're about to hear took place after a screening for Directors UK members of Phantom Thread in 70mm projection at the Prince Charles Cinema. I never had that with one of my movies. <laughs> uh, it's odd for me to do this because, uh, yeah, Q&A, I've done so many of them. And uh, uh, Paul, welcome to Directors UK. And uh, I know that you've uh, been, it's award season, so you've had to do a lot of this lately. And even today, I heard that you were checking the print this morning. Is this true? Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, that kind of care and attention and to detail, etc., obviously shows in the whole film. But uh, I'd like, I have been asked to say that uh, I'll just chat for a bit with, with my notes, pretending to know what I'm talking about. And then I'm going to throw it open to you. And they, I think they have a, a wandering mic, which they'll, they'll hand to you, you know. But uh, it's uh, welcome. But I have to, if I could begin with that, my boring US yeah. <laughs> story. The reason that we know one another is in, uh, I think about 1990, would it have been? 88. Oh, my God. (laughs) And uh, uh, I went to USC in Los Angeles. Uh, I thought I was doing a talk, but I think uh, Paul reminds me that I actually was judging a short film competition and uh, with other people, which I did. And uh, I did it, and I remember coming out of cinema and I was really irritated because uh, I had a little Volkswagen car that got a ticket on campus mm-hmm. and these cops come up to you and give you and I thought well I'll just be, I've been helping them by doing this thing and anyway so I ripped it off and I was really and then suddenly as I drove off this crazy kid was running after me waving a video <laughs> like that so I stopped and then he banged on the window. He says he threw it over the top because it was a convertible. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a video, so I took it home. And day, a couple of days went by, and then, uh, my son said, are you going to watch this thing? It's called uh, The Dirk Diggler Story. <laughs> and um, we watched it. And, of course, it was brilliant, directed by this person here. And uh, it became, ultimately, Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. And um, I did, as all directors do, established directors, when faced with such talent, I wrote to him and said he has no place in our industry (laughs) and should try a different career path. But uh, you didn't listen. (laughs) And here he is. Thank you for this very, very beautiful film that you've just made. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the first question has to be, 
Although there are echoes of Hitchcock's Rebecca, and I know you're steeped in, in film history, it's amazing to me that this kid from LA can write this quintessentially British <laughs> piece. It's almost as if you've discovered some long lost novel by Evelyn Waugh or Muriel Spark and you've adapted it without anybody knowing. You know, you did some pact with the devil and you found this book. Because it's so beautiful. How can you do that? Oh, that's the best compliment I've ever uh, had about it because, uh, yeah, I was self-conscious that um, I have, a, 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 I have a, a pretty good contingent of friends here and I was really nervous that it would look like a kid from the valley made this movie and I, did, I didn't want that. But I was aware of it and I had Daniel Day-Lewis's help um, in, uh, with the script especially. He was really helpful. Um, I, hadn't, I just... Um, tried to do best by my ear. A lot of it ended up sounding like Bad Noel Coward, you know, kind of, which um, it still is pretty great. I mean, Bad Noel Coward's still pretty great, but um, I just kind of aimed in that direction and had Daniel's help in the script. I mean, he should probably have a co-writer. Um, but did you, did you finish the whole thing before you showed it to him, or did you show him sections at a time? Sections at a time. We began together. I had a basic premise that was about a man and a woman and what happens when that man gets sick and how vulnerable he gets mm -hmm. and how he shows more affection when he's ill and flat on his back than when he's standing up. And the woman's idea that perhaps if I kept him that way from time to time, mm. it could make our relationship more interesting. So that <laughs> basic premise needed more, you know. Um, and I went to Daniel with that and our desire to work together was really strong and I sort of had to be the school teacher, the one to say, right, we have to do this and we have to work at it weekly, bi-weekly, whatever it is, and we need to get into this. And so I would write and give him things, I would write and give him things, and he would slowly started to kind of make suggestions, but as a great collaborator, he waited for a while just to sort of let me figure out the story. Um, when we discovered the angle of, of London Couture, that was when things really started to take off. Mm. Something neither one of us knew anything about. But what so because the milieu is unusual. I mean, yeah. well, first of all, it's, it's your first film outside of the United States, isn't it? I mean, the whole film. I know you've done yes. bits. Yeah. So that's a big jump for you. Yeah, but it was a jump I've wanted to take for a while. I've always wanted to come over here to work. Um, <coughs> or, you know, yeah, but this was, this just, this was clear. Um, that kind of, um, it actually started with M.R. James stuff. I thought we were going to do an M.R. James adaption, like a Christmas time horror story. Mm. That was one of the original ideas. Um, and then that kind of puttered out of steam and kind of became... What sort of time uh, thing are we talking about here? When you first had the idea and you went to Daniel, and what, in writing your screenplay and it developing and choosing the milieu and everything, what sort of period of time? Between then and now, it's about three years. Okay. So it was about... A year of, of, of writing, and then a year of prepping and more writing, mm -hmm. and then we started shooting in January, finished in April. Did you change the screenplay because of when you found things, when you found locations? Or? Absolutely, yeah. The, the, the writing would change as the research grew. Yeah. You know, um, you find a story about the rich American heiress Barbara Hutton coming to see Balenciaga, and then we followed that one through, and the more research started turning stuff up. And the more it kept ballooning, and the more we would kind of bring it back down. But in your, uh, I read that you know the original uh, uh, thing from you was was Balenciaga, mm -hmm. and then of course you know here we would be 
well, you know, obviously Paris is where Couture is most famous from, not that Balenciaga is French, but uh, uh, he did eventually end up there. Uh, you know, we had H Hardy Amos and people like that who... Norman Hartnell. And Norman Hartnell. Uh, and Balenciaga, all of whom, uh, well, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a heterosexual couturier, actually, in Paris or London, certainly in London at that period of time. Yeah. Did, did you, I mean, that's, that's a big thing, actually, because that could have pushed you into an area of, uh, of, uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a homosexual uh, love story as mm -hmm. opposed to a heterosexual. Mm -hmm. um, we need, you know, we, we're, Daniel and I are both strong research. We needed like um, two, two points of reference to prove, to, to prove it was possible because it it, it's predominantly, it's a gay man's world. It is, it, is, it is run by them, but there are enough, there were just enough heterosexuals who, who <laughs> that we thought it was okay. Um, yeah, it's funny that. Um, the other thing we found, I have a feeling that when we first started the story, it might not have been his sister, but the more we researched these mm. uh, coutiers with time and time again, there was a sister as the right hand, as the keeper of the gates, mm. who had run the business and kept everything on track. Um, that's another thing that the research provided, but to have made it a gay story was something else. and. I must admit, in the direction. first act, I got you, you. You won me. Over. I mean, I knew where the story was going eventually. But I mean, I always thought, because of having that backstory of, of that's what couturiers are. That there's there's something gay and difficult here. Right. And uh, or even the sister too, because she's such a strong character in the film. Right. Wonderfully played, I have to say. Beautifully played. Leslie Manville, oh, National God. Treasure. Fantastic. Yeah, really, really good performance. But, um, well, that's all. I hope you're speaking too, just about the feeling that there's secrets yes. between them. You know, um, that we reveal something, but we don't really go that way. But there's a tension between them, as if they're sort of orphans who have been together forever and ever, and you never quite know what's being said or is unsaid between them, mm. which I think is a good thing. Yeah, no, it's very beautiful, actually. With regards, it just uh, to ask a directorial question. I mean, there are a number of things, really. Um, it's an astonishingly beautiful film. Uh, and so all the key people that you work with are all your usual people, I think. Yes. Um, in that you brought them here from the United States, which is actually quite unusual mm -hmm. for American directors to bring their whole kit and caboodle. Often us British directors do the thing in reverse because mm -hmm. you're comfortable with the people that you work with, obviously. Uh, your, uh, for instance, uh, your costume designer who's done, who if he doesn't win the Oscar, I'll be very, very surprised. Uh, you've been working with since Boogie Nights almost, right? Before that, the film before, before that, yeah, we've done everything together. So what a journey that you've both made, really, Yeah. to get to this point. Fantastic. It's very yeah. rare that that happens, you know. It's, yeah, it's true, but I, I've stuck with most everybody from the beginning, and, uh, but, but Mark and producers that I work with, I've worked with since the very beginning. Which is wonderful, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... Absolutely. Well, maybe it's terrible, but I wouldn't know, because... <laughs> you would know. You have this little niche for yourself, which I don't know that people appreciate. I mean, I'm sure all the directors here who try and get their films made know how difficult it is, but uh, you have the freedom to do what you want to do. The way in which this film was set up and financed mm -hmm. meant that you didn't have the normal kind of pressures that you have if you go straight to one studio. 
yeah. for to get the money or whatever, and yeah. some difficult studio head who wants to cast this person or that person. Yeah, you've had the freedom to do what you want to do, and that's that's a rare position for directors to be in. And over, I don't know that there are many. You could probably count them on one hand, mm. and you're one of them who has that ability to make your films this way, which is pretty great. Count myself lucky, for sure. Um, well, that probably falls to a, a fiscal responsibility as well that we've always had. We're always so paranoid of going anywhere near over budget, you know. Um, and I, Joanne Sellers here, that was always the lesson I learned was, if they say you can have this out of money, don't ask for more. Don't ask for more, because once you open that door, they, they can start having opinions. So be careful. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, you could argue, I mean, uh, it's not a question I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about the aesthetics of the film because I want to talk to you about the cinematography, which is an unusual situation. But if you were Hitchcock, the thing when he went to make Re Rebecca, the one thing that uh, David O. Selznick allowed him to do was to build gigantic sets. Mm -hmm. And I think that you shot the whole thing in, in Fitzroy Square, right? Fitzroy Square. In a real building. Yes. So you gave yourself... And it, the, there are such elegant things happening there with regards to the camera movements, the steady cam, mm -hmm. which is so hard to do in a real building. Yeah. Did you not, and I suppose it is down to money in the end, I mean, but uh, to build that house would not be a terribly difficult thing to do at Pinewood or, or Shepherdson. Right. Did you ever think about doing it? it we considered it for a split second. I, as it, as the, we always aimed towards the real thing, and we didn't, I didn't really know just how hard it would be. The idea was, well, what do you see, if you are on a set, what do you see outside the windows? So uh, are we building an additional square outside the windows? Are we doing it green screen? Therefore, perhaps creating a green pail coming in through the window that could be scary, annoying, frustrating, not what we intended. Um, I don't know your experience, but the sound, the sound of a real location is, it's, um, you can't recreate it, you know, the creaks and of, of the floorboards in a, in a Georgian townhouse. I don't know that we could have ever had sound design good enough to make mm. it feel and sound that it did. But nonetheless, you've got like 90 people crawling all over that place, you know, which would have been easier if you had been in the studio. Absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly would have been easier, but the results, you know, in this day and age, though, too, with, with um, LED lights and the sort of change in, in yeah. lights, it, it, it's, a lot, it's far more practical these days than it, than it used to be. Sure. Um, so there were a lot of those things. But, um, but you're right, it's limiting, you know, it was limiting. But those limitations were, I think, helpful. Yeah. Now also, you shot on film, yeah. which is great. You're one of the last left. Yeah. Although you didn't edit on film, I don't think. Did you transfer it? That would be taking it too far. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. Um, no, no, no. We shot on film. We process on film. Um, we transfer to the computer, to digital, and we edit yeah. the old-fashioned way. But then we conform the work print again. Um, and we made prints, uh, you know, as you saw tonight. And you shot 185. Yes. Why is that? Um, great question. See, this is director's question. I oh, know, um, very boring, though. Um, I don't remember now, except to say that if it had been widescreen, I think that there's something potentially too modern about that. Yeah. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've done that before, too. This is, it's just, it just boils down to pictures that you see in your head, isn't it? And yeah. somehow you just see it as a box, and you keep seeing it as a box. Maybe it was that all the photographs that we were looking at, and fashion has done a great job of documenting them, they're all, the, they're all 185 or even 166. They're boxes. Absolutely. 
Um, and I suppose, too, you know, we're in that vertical house. It's much more vertical than it is horizontal. Very hard to shoot. And cinematic, from a cinematography point of view, it's, it's quite, quite beautiful, beautiful film. Except, I have to ask this question, I know you're bored up being, answering it, but uh, there's no cinematographer credited. You give lighting cameraman credit to a chap who I think was your gaffer. Yes. And then you, because you work with the same camera operator yes. and camera crew, yes. you trusted them and with yourself, yeah. you did the job that cinematographer so who, who actually, it's on film, so who's, who's got the light meter exactly? So, the, okay, that's, see, now you know the question to ask. The, <laughs> the light meter is in Mike Bauman's hand, who's the, okay. who's, who's the lighting cameraman, the gaffer as yeah. well. He, that, he gets the final say on the stop. Mm -hmm. um, I, I usually get the say, you know, it's, it's a collective. I get, the, I get the last word on camera placement and movement. Yeah. Um, um, the lens choice is usually a sort of uh, my initial choice with a lot of patter between f uh, first assistant Eric Brown and, and Colin who chime in. Once we've done three or four takes my way, they start suggesting, what about? Um, and but, then... And what, was this because you're normal? Because you've worked with the same cinematographer over the years, Yeah, yeah. Not available, available or...? Not available and... and it, out with him or...? No, no, fall, <laughs> no, no falling out or anything oh, okay. like that. But what had happened actually was in, when he'd go off, Robert would go off and do big films, this group of guys, we'd get together and do little side projects, a Radiohead video or a video, music videos for friends of mine, things like that. So we ended up working together and it really flowed quite well and we enjoyed it. And there was a kind of, um, it was a natural evolution. Um, and it was an itch that I wanted to scratch too. Like, right, let's, I think we should try this. And so what would you do the next movie? I'd, I, that's a good one. I'd have to figure that out. Is that a work your But the, the thing here is, is that you don't have to credit a cinematographer. Um, yeah. If we had done it in the States, we would have had to yeah, figure true. out who was the cinematographer. Well, you, I, and I would have yeah, said Once it upon a time here, too, but the unions are not so strong anymore, mm -hmm. so you can get away with doing that. But uh, in the United States, it would be impossible not to. Right. So what happens in awards things? Do you, will you, are you... You remove, yourself, you remove yourself from that category. You do? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, That's a shame for such a beautiful film. Well. Yeah. Anyway, but <laughs> you win everything else. So, so, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to talk about music. Okay, and I'm going to be critical. Okay, good. Uh, Johnny Greenwood, as we all know here, is uh, the British contingent because he's from Radiohead. Yes. And um, you play music. <clears throat> there is a European tradition, I'm not saying it's true, but I'm just going to put the question to you, that you, if you play music under dialogue, it, they say, oh, it's a Spike Lee film, i.e. it's not working. Mm -hmm. um, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you play music, not wall to wall, I don't know what the percentage of music you do, and it's beautiful score, fantastic score, and who uh, also, I hope, will be awarded. But there's a lot of it. And you've made a very, because I know how precise you are, you've made a very serious creative choice to play so much music underneath very crucial dialogue sequences. At some times, you drop it out, and it's so powerful because you do. Yeah. I think Eating of the Omelette, I can't quite remember, but I think Eating of the Omelette and then the big classical piece comes in. Yes. So powerfully because you drop music out. Right. So is it... It's very tempting to put music under things, and why you did that. 
<coughs> Not that you buggered it up. I'm just. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I feel okay because the, if you could sit in on the endless debates and conversations in the cutting room about how much and how little and when it goes in and when it goes out, I mean, it's really at the forefront of all the conversations through editing. Um, there was always a plan for this film that, that it, it, it would approach sort of musical status just because the idea was to constantly be there. Um, and the idea being lower than normal, you know, to really kind of, because there was so much dialogue. Yeah. Now, sometimes I will admit that when a cue comes in and it's really good, it may be a little bit louder than it needs to be because it sounds good, you know, and there's a kind of frustration that can happen there, but it was always Where did built you do that the sound, way. By the way? We recorded the music here between Oxford, Rack, and Air, three different places. And the final mix that we did? We did it in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we usually go up to Skywalker, but this time we, we, we were in such a rush to finish the film that we did it in LA. Mm -hmm. at, a, at a new place up in Mount Olympus at somebody's house. And it's a big yeah. theater this big in a, in a tiny little house. Good, good. Yeah, it's great. Amazing. Acting. Now, you have Daniel Day-Lewis. We're not going to ask you whether it's his last film or not because you'll say you don't know. <laughs> until someone said to me, is it his last film? Oh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And they said, yeah, un until uh, Paul Thomas Anderson sends him another script. <laughs> then he might do it. But there's, I think a lot of directors here would like to know because there's a huge disconnect between certain kind of actors always. I'm, uh, I'm talking generally, not necessarily this film. When you get the great actor, which Daniel Day-Lewis undoubtedly is, they often act on their own. Mm -hmm. They're almost oblivious to the fact that anything else, anyone else is in the scene. In my experience, having worked with certain actors, I'm not saying I've never worked with Daniel Day, so I don't really know, which is the antithesis of American cinema, where everyone connects, mm -hmm. particularly with regards to improvised uh, acting, which he's not part of. Now, you had... I think a wonderful casting in, in Vicky... Uh, no, no. Creeps. 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 Creeps, sorry. <laughs> Creep. Okay. <laughs> I thought it might be Creeps. So. No, no. <laughs> um, she's fantastic because she's very naturalistic and he becomes, uh, in, in a way, in the third act, it's almost as if, and I know you didn't shoot in sequence necessarily, uh, she loosens him up as a person because she's taking control of their relationship mm -hmm. when he is totally in control for the first two acts, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that she almost interrupts his acting, mm -hmm. which is, uh, and he goes along with it, which is, that's a hard thing for a director mm -hmm. because you can have them both looking at, he's going to say she interrupted that, that line, you know, when he doesn't like being interrupted. That's right. Is that, is that a, a bad, uh, <laughs> is that a good observation or a bad observation? <laughs> I only, I, you know, it's spot on the money. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I could keep talking about the movie. I love it because you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I, mm, it's funny. Um, we're used to, if Daniel, Daniel's in a film, it's Daniel's film. You know, um, he's, he's Daniel. He's front and center, or that character that he's playing will lead the film, whether it's the film that we made previously together or Lincoln, whatever it is. The idea in this always was that we had a film that belonged to the girl, you know, mm. and that, that it was her story and it was her entrance in, that his character hits a ceiling pretty early on and you know what he will do and what he won't do and what the rules are. 
which is there's a ceiling to that, and that's kind of that's it. So he's boxed in, and Daniel, that's all he'll do. You know, he won't give you the audience or her anything else. You know, mm -hmm. That's and that's what his performances are so magical because of. Mm. So her, she came in and. And this isn't a gag, this isn't a story. Like two, two weeks in, he said, she makes me really nervous. And I, and he wasn't, he, I could see he had, he, she had him on his back foot. Um, just the way that she could keep up with him mm -hmm. and the way that she stuck her chin into it or her shoulder mm -hmm. into it. She really was not intimidated in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the character, but that is Vicky as well. I mean, she's mm. incredibly powerful performer, and you could feel him bending. You could just yeah. feel him bending, and he—he—it's also a selfless act. It's a very generous. It's a very generous performance mm. that he's given to, um, and the two of them are good together. And that combative scene that that um, over asparagus dinner. Um, that's like, you know, if you were ever in the room when your mom and dad are fighting, that was like flashbacks for me, like, boy, oh boy, this is, I don't want, let's get out of this room. They're, mom and dad are fighting. <laughs> uh, I'm going to throw it open in a minute to everyone so they can ask more intelligent questions than I do. Um, uh, now, the last four films have been, period, is there a reason for that? And, and mostly in, in the 50s often. Is it 50s? Am I wrong about that? I mean, No, that's pretty close. I mean, both. The Master was in the 50s, 50s and this is the 50s. 50s and 30s probably, uh, was it? Uh, uh, there Will Be there Blood, will be blood. was the turn of the century to 20s. Oh, okay. to, to, yeah, yeah, 1898 to 1927 was the time span there. A friend of mine the other day, good writer, said, you know, have you noticed more and more there are fewer stories after 1994 being made. And his theory was, ever since these devices have come into our life, storytelling has become less interesting. Because you yeah. know, if you have to defuse the bomb, you just get the app on your phone and defuse the bomb. You know, it's like, it's kind of, and I, he's got a point. I mean, I think that probably my, my I have a pull towards history. Um, but then again, there's always that horrible feeling of like, again, can't you just the feeling of wanting to be able to walk out onto the street and start shooting, mm. you know, you, which you, you, you eliminate the second you, it says period piece, um, which is a drag, you know, there's, some, there's a, a freedom that's kind of missing. But do you, you must enjoy, I mean, creating th that world. I love it. Because it's not easy to do. And you do it so beautifully, I mean, so with such detail. You must go into such research in order to, to be that good at it. I'm a, um, I'm a like, um, in my free time, I'm on newspapers.com, like reading old newspapers mm. for pleasure. I don't know what it is. Like, I have one foot in, in the past. Mm. Don't know what it is. But I, I, I love it. I love that part of, the, part of it that is, um, yeah. Just, uh, just going to backtrack a little with regards to Vicky which is part of that freedom you have. Because they, no one, I don't know if any of you, probably there are aficionados of Luxembourgian and, and French movies, but most people would not know who she is. Right. And there would be a lot, and you've got Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, three-time Oscar winner, uh, and you're gonna cast this unknown person. You, if you were doing it in the conventional route, with conventional finance from studios, 
they would pressure you to, not to have an unknown, I'm almost certain. And you had the freedom not to. So how do you, when you have that freedom, when you've not got that pressure, what's your decision making? Because then it's on your shoulders, you know. You're exactly right. Um, um, it, w it, would have been, it would have been scary or felt like pressure if we hadn't found Vicky very early on. Mm -hmm. You know, it was that gamble that um, to say, I, I'm sure that it close, it's closing your eyes, like pin the tail on the donkey. I know there's somebody out there. Um, let, let's try and go find her. And the mission was to find somebody between 25 and 31, let's say, just as a vague ballpark. European, preferably Eastern European in some way. She had to be an immigrant in this country at that time. Did you don't do her backstory, do you? No. Is uh, there a reason for that? I mean. Well, okay, <coughs> we had a little bit, and it was a classic kind of, um, it was a classic situation of too much information. Yeah. You know, um, the one bit of backstory that remains, which is a very subtle thing, is that when they go to Barbara Rose's wedding and the reporter um, asks about asks um, about selling visas to the Jews during the war, you see a close-up of her that um, with what the look is on her face, mm. I, I felt comfortable eliminating what information we'd done in the first act, mm. saying it's subtle, it's there, if you get it, great. If you don't get it, I think there's enough mystery with her and enough going on in her face That's that we don't need to over-explain it. It's probably, yeah, more of a European or a British thing even, you know, even needing that backstory because if you think of American movies had Ingrid Bergman and Greta Garbo and nobody ever said oh where do you come from you know right. I'm, a, I'm a movie star I live in LA you know right. but, uh, <laughs> so it's not so necessary really right and it can be a bit crossing the T's and dotting the I's I guess a bit but then all the danger is uh, of being too obtuse and too mysterious yeah. you know it's always that thing in the cutting room you say is it okay? Are we all right? And I always err on a slightly more mystery, letting an audience do the work, letting an actor do the work, really. I mean, even with Daniel, especially with Daniel, you can write 10 pages of stuff and you see him sitting at a breakfast table and you go, okay, I got it. Wow. You know? yeah. Those are beautiful scenes, actually. Then you come back to the use of sound. I mean, it's like, right. so cool. Uh, but uh, the other thing I greatly admire about you, without kissing your feet too much, is you truly are a great auteur, and I hate that word because the French invented it, and they get <laughs> French get most things wrong. There are a lot of there are a lot of great directors who write and direct, and there are a lot of great directors who don't write, you know. Uh, but you always do every word, and you don't even have collaborators. I don't think sometimes they are from uh, you know from other material. Mm -hmm. This is an original. Mm -hmm. uh, could you see yourself ever uh, directing if you hadn't written it? That would be, that would be very difficult for me to imagine. Um, even w working with novels like Pinchon's book um, or the Upton Sinclair book or, yeah. or Oil, um, that was very helpful and, and enjoyable, but the pleasure that I get from writing is, is, is vast. I enjoy doing it, um, and I would hate to not have that. Um, I like collaborating um, like with the actors when it comes to the writing. That feels like a strong collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, I love writing, so I, I, wouldn't, I would not want to let anybody else do that. And how, uh, uh, when you've done a screenplay, in this case, you, know, you, you said you, you ran by uh, with 
uh, Daniel, but that's his part. He didn't do that with everyone else or the story, I imagine. I mean, that's, how much, what's the difference between, do you have a finished screenplay? Or does it take on different lives? Is it organic, you know, as you make, go through the filmmaking process? It, yeah, it's flexible. Uh, the, 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 the structure is usually, is usually the same as when you sort of write the end and then you start to go in. But I, I don't know your experience, but location scouting starts informing yeah. everything. Location scouting, locations, locations, locations. That imaginary situation that you had in your mind when somebody's yelling at each other from across the room suddenly becomes something that's right, right here. Um, so rewriting happens during scouting, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't do traditional rehearsals in any way. We do like sitting down in one go that's hopefully as long as the story will be and reading through the script quickly. <coughs> Not the stage yep. direction, but just the dialogue. Do you, do you find problems there with, I mean, you know, certain, some, some, some speeches don't work or some, you know, yes. dynamics are not working. And yeah. just in that straight read re to. Yes, too many words. Usually it's too many words. Um, yeah, rarely is it not enough words. Usually it feels like too much writing, too much writing, cutting things out and connecting pieces together. So if you do a scene, say like one of the breakfast scenes, for instance, you've not rehearsed that. No. And so it's the first time you're seeing it when you're sitting down to shoot it. Right. And do you, do you change things then or not? Yes. We will try to shoot the first rehearsal. That's a very easy scene to do because everybody's sitting down. Yeah. Or two people are sitting down and Cyril will come in for breakfast. Um, Cyril comes in, we'll just shoot, shoot, shoot it the first time and it'll be a mess, nine times out of 10. One time something fantastic will happen, but we'll adjust as we go through the takes and just refine it, refine it, refine it, make it better. Figure and out what, that you don't need Cyril to walk into the scene, that she can just be there, whatever those adjustments are. Okay, it's a boring, boring question, but it's a director's question. How many takes? Well, um, we are not a lot, but uh, anywhere between 8 and 17. But we ha what we'll do, we ha came up with a method that was more how many takes in the mag. Let's say it's a two-minute scene and you have a ten-minute mag. Yeah. You're going to have five goes at it. Do you think film? See, you're on film again. Yeah. Not relevant, because... So we would just roll... Film is dictate, yeah, good, I like that. So we would, so everybody kind of feels that there's 10 minutes worth of a take here. Yeah. And sometimes we'll do a second mag. And the most enjoyable thing was when you knew I would keep an eye on it and go, well, it's a two-minute scene, but there's only a minute and a half left, and you go, fast one. <laughs> and everybody starts talking fast. <laughs> Those were always the best takes, the ones that were in the movie. Brilliant. You, you, you dedicate the film to Jonathan Demi. What's the story there? Um, he was a hero of mine. Um, Something Wild and Stop Making Sense, Married to the Mob, Science of the Lambs, Melvin and Howard, those were all films that I absolutely cherished growing up and got to know him. Um, he was super kind to me and helpful in my career and my life. Our families got to know each other quite well. And um, the the, the horrible, confused tragedy was that the, I, I, saw, I knew the end was coming a couple days before it did, but our final day of shooting here uh, in a park right over by Central Saint, the old Central St. Martins, I got a phone call that he passed away. And so had to go and shoot this last scene in the park, and I kept hearing his voice in my head saying, like, buddy, you just finished a movie. You know, so he was a great man. I don't know if you, did you ever get to know him? I did know him, not not as well as you did, but uh, yeah, I did know him. Yeah, very lovely man. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
big, 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 generous heart, big yeah. personality, and a uh, great filmmaker. I agree entirely. So, it's your turn. If we have a microphone, if you have questions. Uh, nice to speak to you. That was brilliant. I've been a fan of yours for ages, and just for your information, Boogie Nights is my is in my top three. So you can die happy now. So oh my God. <laughs> um, uh, I just kind of want to know. I suppose to you know, can you show us your bag of tricks? Really, I mean, because you're such a particular filmmaker, and your vision is so particular. That's what I enjoy about your films is you can you know you've got such a way with the camera and way with the cast. How do you approach your actors? How do you then, I mean, kind of touched a little bit, I suppose, before, but then how do you then plot your camera? Like, are you seeing everything in your head and you're like, no, it's got to be exactly like this? Like, can you just tell me you on set? Boy, I bet it's a lot messier behind the scenes than you might imagine. I mean, sometimes. Do you storyboard, for instance? No, no. Um, if it's a big, like something like in There Will Be Blood, when you've got the gu like when there's pr physical effects and yeah. things and things on fire and lots of things going on, absolutely. Um, those are scary situations that you really have to get map out. But this was essentially, you know, a three-hander in a townhouse. So there was um, a not only that only so many places you could ever be, and the I the I the mission was always um, make sure you see their faces just because you've got those three actors, you want to kind of get that right. Um, I always, I, 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 I'm like an old, I'm a TCM, Turner Classic Movies fanatic, so I live and breathe for old movies. So I think my first instinct is always, well, what would they do? And that generally means a great master shot that can hopefully play in a mass. So if it's good, then you can just leave it and get out of the way. But recognizing like, mm, you know, that doesn't always work. And that can't just become a kind of uh, a trick. Like, look at this, we did it in one. So just where do you want to look? Where do you want to see? I mean, um, I remember kind of getting really lost um, for a while on, uh, when we were making The Master, and a friend of mine just brought a sports analogy to, to mind that was so helpful. He was like, just run the offense, just make plays. And it was this really helpful thing to get back to, like, mm. just when in doubt, keep it simple, make plays. What, what is one piece that each scene is just one piece of this larger thing? Um, and then, you know, there's other films that you think of for sure. I mean, I mean, I have a Max Olfels addiction, a little bit. You know, the way he moved the camera around. So I'm always, look, you know, inspired by that for sure. And um, I don't know. Hope that answers your question a little bit. Any question? Who's got the mic? Okay. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, a great film, fan, absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, you're mentioning that you uh, shoot on film but edit digitally. Do you print your rushes and screen dailies each night, and is that part of your creative process? Yes, um, it, 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 it normally is. Um, when we're in Los Angeles, we would do the old-fashioned way, you know, printing dailies and getting everybody together and watching dailies, especially at the very beginning. Everybody's still got a lot of energy. You're fresh. <laughs> You're not tired at, at night, and then like it just like the 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 box office at dailies goes like down and down and down and down like less people. You, but I think it's more that you've maybe you've found confidence. It's because they're knackered, and it's always after work, isn't it? Normally, and you just want to get some rest. But it's also that 
usually you've you've found your footing, hopefully, after a couple of weeks, yeah. and you've got some confidence, and you can kind of know what works. Do you allow actors to see your dailies? If they want to, but none of them ever want to. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Have, I mean, uh, I would say I always discourage it, and and it's always easy. So I didn't realize that they didn't want to see him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always think the more the merrier, but you find that they're like, mm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm fine. Um, um, over here, we found it difficult to print dailies. It's not, it doesn't happen that much anymore, so we were just yeah. going to Technicolor and Soho each night after Fitzroy Square, and we'd, we'd watch it. And Yeah, again, you know, we'd, we'd run out of steam, and we, would, and we would see things that were a bit like the New Year's Eve thing. We were all anxious to run in there and say, yeah. ah, how, did it, how did it turn out, yeah. you know? I can't tell you, I'm still always surprised every day that there's exposure. I'm still have that <laughs> Really, like... Came out. It came out. <laughs> Incredible, yeah. Please. There we go. Hey, um, I thought that was fascinating. I thought um, as, a, as a sort of triangle of central characters, each one was so different and and so distant at times and I just wondered if um, it seemed to be that a lot of it was about who was looking at who but more also more importantly who wasn't looking at who and whether you were really prescriptive about that or was that something that the actors brought to the table um, they were they were doing that they were doing that naturally that those kinds of dynamics and then I put in a request here and there to amplify one up um, you know um, I came, I came up with a really nice idea one morning. I was so proud. I was between Cyril and Alma, this looks between them and this kind of this, this smile that happens between them. But it was me just kind of capitalizing on stuff that had, was already kind of in play between them. And it was me sort of jumping off of recognizing how they, how they were going. Daniel's really good at that. Daniel's really good at sideways glances. I mean, he's, he's kind of a master at it. Um, and you, it's kind of money in the bank going into the cutting room. You know, you know that even if somebody isn't saying something, if they've looked up out of the corner of their eye, you have an, an unsaid moment, which is like, unsaid moments are like, I mean, they're they're just they're gold when you when you can get them. I think, um, especially when you're sort of plowing through what the dialogue is and everything else, they're they're unexpected, uh, they're un the land of unintended consequences when you get great looks between people um, that you just you couldn't in a million years imagine when you're writing something like that. So. What sort of uh, editing t period did you have? Very short, we finished in April. Yeah. We finished in, uh, at Thanksgiving, November 26th. So ugh, May, June, July, August, September, October. These days, that's, yeah, well, that's quite long, actually. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're Ridley Scott, it's like long. He just put in, did a whole, redid a whole movie in like 10 days. Hello. Um, yeah, I was just fascinated about in terms of the writing. Um, you said that you seem to enjoy writing, which not many people tend to do. So is and and I think the thing, beautiful thing about a lot of your movies is that there's such a focus on the very intricate and minute behaviours and whether and 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 again writing those things into the screenplays always uh, can be very very difficult. And I'm just fascinated about how your 
process towards writing, things like that, and how it affects your vision and how intrinsic the writing is to your directing process? Well, I, in, my, in my experience, I don't know what your experience is, but if you have a scene that is written well, you can, be, you, can be, you can show up and be a really good director that day. But if you don't have a scene that's written well, you've got a 50-50 chance of survival. Maybe you could pull something out of your hat, but you, chances are you're, you're going you're gonna to be in trouble. Um, that's been my experience. Um, peculiarities, I mean, you made me think of, I mean, I, 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 made me, I made me try to think of something to talk about there would be, you know, Dan, I, ordering breakfast has always been a fascination for Daniel and I, and I kind of this kind of like <laughs> you can you can tell a lot by somebody by how they order their breakfast, you know. Um, and sometimes in writing, you get something like that, and you realize you have a movie. You're like, wait a minute, mm. this is enough, you know, to get to get on to get on with it, right? I was trying to write a scene of this waitress meets this man, and that a breakfast order comes out, and you think, well, I know who this person is now, you know. Um, those are the kind of perhaps idiosyncrasies that, that really can tell a story because you know now you know now what he's about and now you know what she's up against and now you have a frame of reference for the next two hours. So. In interesting is that because you always had Daniel and because you cast Vicky pretty early on because mm -hmm. normally in a movie you know you, you're reading your screenplay over and over with different actors and things before you decide who's going to be it. Mm -hmm. And during that time, you think, you know, there are certain scenes you think, if you've written it, you think, oh, God, this is never going to work. And then suddenly someone comes in and they read it and then, bang, it's beautiful. Absolutely. And you think it's because it's the right person. As opposed, Other times, you better address yourself to the fact that that scene isn't actually working. But you don't have that luxury if you're, you know, You've got actors who were in right from the very beginning, but, well, you, apart from that read-through that you mentioned. Yes, but you do with with smaller scenes when you bring actors into audition for a smaller part that you don't you don't know who could play this part, and um, and you get you know when you you get you can get sick of scenes pretty quickly that way. You know, you sort of hear yeah. it 15, 20 times, and you go. Um, you think it's not working. Yeah. It's just not working. This is not working. Yeah. And then you, you're exactly right. Somebody comes in, and you go. I knew this was okay. This person, <laughs> yeah. and, and there it happens. Yeah. However, I've had a few times where um, it, it just you get sick of something fast, and 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 you are, and you have to listen to something. You say, this isn't this actor who's a great actor who's come in. There's something wrong in the construction here. Um, First instincts are usually really correct, aren't but because they? You, because you are a writer, what would you say you are? A director, writer, or writer, director? Writer, director. Okay. Writer being first. Okay, yeah. I know. Right. But if, do you have situations in scenes where you think, can you give me a minute, and you go off, and you rewrite it? Not rewrite it completely, but change it. Or do you go, that's it? Uh, I will try to rewrite, but within reason for the actors in terms of what they can memorize. But I've usually no, found that it's like it's looking at it and making, taking a box around four lines of dialogue and making a big X through. Do you do about the night before? Do you ever do that? I try not to, but I have been guilty of that. Yeah, what, showing up the next day and going, I know you've memorized this whole scene, yeah. but, <laughs> and that and that's a drag. You know, that can really screw everybody up. So I try to. We try to always sort of see on the horizon a scene that's coming and say, is everybody okay with what's coming up? Yeah. And sometimes there's no time to get it right, or the, at least everybody is on the same page about, yeah, I'm feeling pretty confident about what's coming, or I'm nervous and it needs to be addressed. 
yeah, for sure. There was a scene that we have with Julia Davis, who again is a national treasure, who's sort of notorious as a great uh, improvisational actress. I mean, that's what she does. She's a comedian. But um, I went to her and I was very afraid because I, was, I, did, I had a very thinly written scene and I needed help. And the worst thing that you could say to somebody is, I don't have anything. You'll just improvise something, you know, which is like, it ain't fair to anybody. No. So with her help, uh, in the middle of production, uh, I, which I had very little time, but she was able to write some stuff up. I was able to contribute. So we were able to get a base to start from, because then the improvisation can come from there. Sure. Just sort of throwing somebody into the deep end of the pool and saying, be funny is like, it's putting a chain around their neck. Thank you so much. Just to add to the thanks for bringing it in 70mm, which is uh, an extraordinary treat. Actually, see a film made on film. Okay. Uh, I wanted to, uh, um, Alan mentioned the fact you know, you've done several period films, and I'm very struck, maybe particularly with this and The Master, as I was watching them, by the fact that I didn't have the sensation of like, oh, haven't they beautifully recreated this period? I just felt like I was just in another place in time. And that must have a lot to do with how you approach creating a period. I've no idea what it is. D do you have an answer? Mm, um, just really well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You know, I mean, um, I, I think you can agree with this, because you don't do this. You know, it's like sometimes in period films, they, the directors may feel a need to oversell you on the fact that it is another time and place with unnecessary establishing shots, unnecessary wide shots, unnecessary London 1955 letters, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I suppose that kind of stuff, it's, it's, it was like... Um, you didn't really do that, did you? No, no. Very um, tight, everything. Yeah. But you know, I mean, I don't know. Mississippi Burning's a period piece, but it also doesn't feel like a period piece. It just feels like you just get on with things. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I think about your the commitments could be any time, any place. It's, I'm, I'm doing a Q and A. Oh no! <laughs> but I, 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 I think it's a kind of like it's it's that if you're telling the story and not selling somebody, maybe that's a good thing. And it's yeah. I mean, the art. I haven't gotten to wax your car. No, no. The, uh, thank you. The, uh, <laughs> I mean, the art director is British. Has you worked with him before? Yes, I wanted to correct that earlier when you said yeah. we brought everybody over, and I yeah. just brought a few people over. But the the ninety nine percent of this crew is is British, oh, okay. um, and Mark Tilsley is the designer. Um, I did. I thought it would be um, rude to come here and <laughs> bring an American. I thought we need we, we should hire somebody who knows what they're talking about. Hmm. So, okay, we've got time apparently of being waved out. We've got one more question, please. Go front. Fantastic film. Absolutely loved it. Over here. Over here. Hello. Um, there, hi. Uh, beautiful film. Thank you. Uh, really curious about the um, balance between the three characters um, as a three-hander, whether... Along the way, there was more emphasis um, on the Alma character, or whether you would always did you end up with what you imagined in the first place and what you wrote, or did it 
did it go to one percentage more to one character or to the others or kind of fascinated about the um, the balance? Well, um, there was always the intention from the beginning that the movie would, would, if it needed to belong to somebody, it would be Alma because the drive, she opens the story, she narrates the story, she's... Um, in that classical protagonist way, she's, she's easier to follow and identify with, you know. Um, and I would, of course, become fascinated by Cyril, and, and we shot some extra scenes with Cyril. And Dylan, the editor of the film, says the same one thing when we sit down to get together, finally we finish shooting and we sit down and he says, I just want to remind you how this is going to go. If this doesn't have something to do with Reynolds and Alma, it's going to be out of the movie. And then on top of that, if it doesn't have something to do with Alma, it has very slim chance of surviving in the movie. So that was a kind of... Was it long when you had the first car? Not too bad. Two, 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 two twenty. Mm -hmm. 25. So not too many sacrifices. Not too many. And the, and the ones that had to go were obvious yeah. pretty clearly. Getting that last five minutes out was the... Always. Yeah. yeah. So it was standard. Mm. Um, but she was our, our protag, as they say. You know, mm -hmm. she was easy to follow um, because she, you, you root for her, I suppose. I mean, she might do a few peculiar things along the way towards showing her man <laughs> what um, he, she, he's got right in front of his face. But, um, yeah. Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. I was going to say something else, but I, I've lost But the balance of the three. What was the question? Balance of the three, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I got very, very fascinated with Leslie Manville's character, probably because I really, really enjoyed working with her. And there were a couple of scenes that were great, but ultimately, again, it's got to really focus on Reynolds and Alma. And I, um, but I love the, I love the brother and sister relationship. I have many sisters. I have three sisters. So I've sympathized with any girlfriend I've ever had having to come into my life, you know, and kind of break through what it means to have three very powerful sisters around. It's not, it's not easy. So I, I understood that dynamic very well. So, but this was, this was this love story. That was our thing over and over again. Tell the story of those two. But, and I think that was the way to go. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't know, I have this weird thing, you know, in the, in the age of Netflix and stuff where people have, you know, we've mostly, up to this point in the history of movies, had to take sometimes very big novels and make them, you know, it's an hour and a half, two hour structure that we have to work to. And this is an original, so you're writing it from your, in your head, but you're still following a three-act three act construction. And then in the, in the, you're thinking, don't get too long, don't get too long. You know, mm -hmm. it's in your head all the time. But actually, you know, in a world where we are now getting more and more used to it. I, I, I just, this is just it's a very hypothetical question, is, is that if you did your work where we weren't forced to be into two hours ten, or whatever it is you're aiming for, uh, would you go off on what's, you know, what's Cyril's backstory, or what's, the good, what's uh, Alma's back, you know, I mean, you can't do that. And in a way, because you can't, makes it a very concentrated, that's it, that's the art form, really. Yeah. Yeah. Try and tell your story in such a short period of 
period of time, you know. And always, Hitchcock who said, actually, don't take too long a novel. It's much better to take a short story and expand it. Yes, know? yes. But, uh, yeah. Um, this is the first time in a long time we went in with a, a pre, a, like a script that was a thinner page count that we needed. They felt like, oh, that's good. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, um, yeah. Um, um, I, other writers always talk about that the, the thing that you, is the hundred page Chekhov short stories, or they're kind of like novellas. They said, that's perfect. Don't ever try and do anything other than that. And I know that feeling of like, you know, like even somebody gives you a book and it's like this thick, and you go, Never. what do you expect me to do with this? What if I fall asleep and it like breaks my foot? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, I'm, and I've made long movies and it just gets so self conscious. Like, What's you know, the longest movie you ever made? Three hours and too long. Um, <laughs> Magnolia. Uh, okay. There is, but do you find yourself? Uh, I don't know. I've, you can feel. What happens when you sit with an audience for the first time and watch your movie? Do you feel? Oh, it's long. Oh, it's not funny. Oh, it's. How do you feel? Yes. Yes. All <laughs> I wish we were getting to the next thing. I, w I think they've got it. You can feel when somebody, ha when somebody has it and it's time to move on, or w when there's an outward uh, a a response, when people laugh. It's like, yeah. it's like the heavens open up. It's a great thing. <laughs> it really it's just joy. Yeah. Um, we have something in this movie, and I, this is, again, the land of unintended consequences that I didn't realize we had. I didn't see if it happened tonight because I wasn't in the back of the theater. Mm. But um, when Reynolds discovers in the hem, or when Alma discovers in the hem the note, never cursed, it's turned on its side. And you can watch just about everybody in the audience <laughs> turns their head like that. Uh, that is a great feeling. Yeah. Well, you should have a great feeling about the whole film because it's quite beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded from an event as part of the Directors UK programme. Directors UK is the professional association of all screen directors. We now have over 6,000 members and our work involves campaigning, lobbying and supporting the craft of directing in the UK. To find out more, please visit www.directors.uk.com.